Good morning, Misfits. You are tuning into episode 10 of the Misfit Project. I am your host, Drew Crandall. And we were I was listening to Ted edit the last podcast and realized that I have been saying across from the table is Ted. Uh, Ted is not across from the table. Ted is across from me at the table. Yes. I'm not really sure why I was saying that. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, it was like nine episodes of you saying it, though. So I think yeah. your brain just kind of got in a rhythm and just kind of rolled with well, it. Well, so Ted is not across from the table. Ted is at the table. Ted yes. is across from me. And to my right, ooh, special guest. Special. Hello, hello. Super special. Matthew Stevenson Sherburn. That's not even close. What's your middle name? Michael. Matthew Michael. Is your dad's name Michael? No. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yes. It is. It is. Like, Come on, man. That's rude. Yeah. Um, so, Sherby Sherb in the house. A lot Yo. of people that uh, are familiar with Misfit Athletics or CrossFit MF or any of our other projects um, are familiar with Sherb. And we wanted to have him on the podcast mainly because today's topic is something that's actually worked pretty well for him. And it's nice to be able to connect, you know, the, you know, the weight loss benefits and the therapeutic benefits with some actual performance benefits. So today's podcast is all about intermittent fasting. And this is one of those things where when we did the the intro episodes, we talked a lot about wanting to circle back to the topics that you guys wanted to hear about and dig into further. So one of the best ways for you guys to tell us what you want um, is just to slide into those DMs and let us know, hey, you said you were going to do this podcast. I'd love to hear that one. Um, you know, anything that you guys want us to dig into, um, that's sort of going to be the style of the podcast now that we got through the intro phase. So you're essentially either going to hear us get together and really dig into a specific topic or have a guest on to dig into a topic, whatever it is. So if you guys have suggestions for guests, if you have suggestions for topics, um, again, shoot us a message, shoot us an email us at up. the misfit dot project on Instagram or info at misfitproject.com. There is a contact uh, link on the website on the as well. Yep. It's a, uh, it says connect and it, gives the email and I have to update the address since we moved. Oh shit. That's yeah. true. So before we get into the science and the research and why this works, how it works, uh, how we're going to do it, I'd like to dig a little bit into personal experience with, with everybody sitting at the table. Um, you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, for me, I've been looking for a proper path for nutrition. I mean, I'm always someone who's and trying to get all I can from performance angle, but also just like being healthy in general. And I've worked many different diets. I've like any CrossFitter who's done zone, done paleo, tracked the macros. Dude, I was ripped when I was on zone. I mean, I had Dude, no six energy. Six blocks? Come I had on, no now. energy, but I tried. Know. I tried zone once, but I felt just ridiculous counting almonds. Do like, you ever feel I ridiculous couldn't. looking at the plate and like you have this giant pile of like broccoli and you get like this nickel sized piece of meat and you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. This isn't what I want. Yeah. Not I mean, sustainable for me. No, me either. I just didn't like it very much, but going from, you know, the paleo zone style to if it fits your macros, which is kind of the craze right now in our, uh, other jobs or misfit athletics yeah. jobs. Uh, a lot of those diets had a lot of carbohydrate in it for me. I was, you know, I wanted something that was a little bit different. It felt like I wasn't being as necessarily as healthy as I could. So talk to Drew about this and I'm um, going to go into this further later on. But I was just looking for a, a 
lifestyle that, or a diet that fits my lifestyle where, you know, I'm busy in the morning, I'm working out in the morning and I just, I'm looking for something that helped me, you know, perform my best and feel my best. And so far it's been intermittent fasting. So I've been pretty happy with how it's gone so far. And what's that schedule look like? Um, most days I'm trying to fit all my food into like an eight hour window, which, you know, leaves you with 16 hours of fasting most days. Every once in a while, if I'm training a little bit earlier, I'll start eating a little bit earlier, but any given day I'm looking at 12 to 16 hours of fasting. So I, you know, finish eating somewhere between 7.30 and 8.30 at night. I don't eat the next day until 11.30, 12.30. So, you know, it's a chance for my body to actually digest. And for me, it just makes sense because so go, go, go in the morning that, you know, sitting down to make breakfast or sitting down to, you know, weigh things out, make them work for me, it just didn't make sense. So, and how was that acclimation period for you? I know that you went from a little bit of a higher carb diet straight into the fasting. Like, how were you able to make go from kind of zero to, to 16 hours? And you have, you have people who are used to that diet and there is that first, I don't know, three to seven day window where your body's like, give me my sugar, give me my sugar. Why right. aren't you giving me my sugar? Come on now. But after a few days, you know, you get used to, you know, mentally being part of it. Like, Hey, I'm not going to be eating first thing when I wake up and it gives your body a chance to wake up, which is what I found was nice before I'd be like waking up and like, I still groggy trying to make oatmeal and put peanut butter in it and put everything else in it. And I'm just like shoving my face, but not really enjoying it. So now I get right. a chance to like wake up, you know, I have some water with some sea salt in it, or I have one of those electrolyte tabs and water, sit down at the table, like hang out with my dogs, maybe read something on the internet or just kind of sit there and relax, which is for me really nice because it felt very rushed in the morning before trying to make food. And I, you know, it's good to plan your meals out the day before, but sometimes you just get home from work and you don't want to sit there and like make food and plan your food for the next like day or so. Right. I just wasn't really into that. So before you were fasting somewhere in that nine to 10 hour range, essentially just a little bit before sleep and a little bit exactly. after. Exactly. Yep. And it only took you about a week to get into the full 16 or was it a little bit longer than that? I mean, that? you and I had worked before together. We had, you know, seen like the bulletproof coffee thing come and go or it's still going, but it, like it, it had its period where it was really, really popular with a lot of people. And I was doing that for a while and, you know, I was fasting probably 10 hours and then I went back to the, the carb thing and I was getting like seven hours fasting. But when I started this, you know, you just start gradually. For me, it started at 12 hours, like do a manageable amount. And then next thing you know, it wasn't hard to do 14. Next thing you know, I'm like 16 hours. No big deal. It's one of those things where you slowly ramp up into it. Right. What about you, Ted? You got any personal experience with, with fasting? Anything that? I, honestly, I don't, I don't have any experience with it. I, uh, I probably do a 14 to 16 hour fast every day, but not like consciously, like right. I'm not going to eat for I'll 14 hours. Clock. It's, <laughs> I wake up in the morning. I make my coffee and I come right into the office and there's no food here. Right. So I'm not eating while I'm here. Yeah. And there's not really anything close aside from like the grocery store. So I actually have to leave the office to like go on a lunch break. So typically I'm not eating until later in the day regardless. Right. Um, starting today, in fact. Yeah. We're changing my numbers up. Me and Drew are working together to try to shift maybe to a more ketogenic style. Yeah high fat, low carb with deliberate intermittent fasting involved. Right. And based on my style of life currently, I think it's going to be pretty easy to pull off that 14 hour window. Yeah. The 24 hour one, not so easy. I've done it. I did it recently. Yeah. Uh, and I got to a point in my day where like six o'clock, seven o'clock rolled around where normally is when I eat like my big meal. Yeah. And all I could think about was food. Yeah. That's all I could do. Well, what's good about the 24 hour, if you do it right, is 
you would end you would end your eating window a little bit earlier than usual the night before so that just based on a routine standpoint when you ate again that next day you would essentially only be skipping like lunch right if you were already in some sort of like intermittent fasting style and I think that's that's one thing that we're not really going to get into when we, when we start digging into the science here is that lifestyle piece, which is kind of nice. Not having to worry about food while you're working or for me to blend up some, you know, MCT oil and butter into coffee like that takes, you know, two seconds right. or it takes no seconds if Austin's around to do it for me. So, um for me, this is this topic is really important to me because it was um, me making a big change in my life was sort of a two-step process, and this was that second step that kind of put me over the hump. Um, I don't know. I don't remember how far into detail I've gone in the past, you know, on the podcast about my personal health issues, but, um, you know, I had a lot of them, and that's sort of what's led me to, to being here, to, to doing the podcast, um, to trying to help other people. I had essentially every autoimmune condition under the sun, uh, asthma, eczema, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, even some mental health issues. And the, the piece where I found out that I, you know, had the, you know, the celiac gene and essentially gluten was, um, you know, there's the joke. Gluten Drew was was a version of me that I, I essentially good. I essentially looked. Chicken I was legs. I was very I was very skinny, um, but in a very you odd should use way. the term you normally use, which is melted wax. Drew. Well, that's where yeah, that's where I was going with it. I was it literally looked like I was a candle that had been you know some flames had been a little too close and <laughs> my skin was like falling off of my body. So um, that 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 realization of the fact that I was allergic to something that I was putting into my body all day, every day made a very, very big change in my life. But some of the issues kind of stuck around and I knew through the research that I did that a lot of that had to do with my gut biome and most of what I tried to do at that point was based on um, improving my gut biome through probiotics, through, you know, fermented food, through whatever means possible, but not until I got into a, like a real fasting regimen did I make these like really big changes. And that's sort of what I mean by that second step. Um, I noticed a really, really, really big difference in my digestion. And once I noticed a big difference in my digestion, I noticed a big shift in my body composition. Um, and that's something that we'll get into on the science and you know, where does that come from? How does that happen? A lot of it for me was just the fact that I had leaky gut syndrome for 25 years. So, you know, a lot of the nutrients that I was trying to put into my body, even when I had the random spells of trying to eat healthy throughout my youth, which wasn't all that often, but it did happen. (laughs) Diet Mountain Mountain Dew. It just wasn't working. So for me, it's one of those things where I made a big change. A lot of stuff changed for me but there were still just these like leftover pieces of my old health issues and um getting into fasting made such a huge difference when it came to that and you know for me personally 
I am, I do care about performance, but it's more for me just kind of fun to care about that. Like you have your like little, it doesn't like, want to look good, right? Well, good. it's, there's that, but there's also like just the in gym, like yeah. I lifted more weight or I did a little bit better in this workout. Like that kind of thing is fun. Um, you know, and, and fasting has led me, you know, towards that being better. But for me, being able to make these changes in my life has, has been really important. And just to circle back to the lifestyle thing for me to be able to get up in the morning and to not have to eat and to actually feel better when I don't eat, um, is, it's huge for me, you know? And, and I get to that point in the day, it's typically between noon and two, um, where I want to, you know, I've gotten past that 16 hour number for me. I'm typically like 16 to 18 hours when it's 18 though. It's not on purpose. It's like, oops, I work too much today. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because eventually, and we'll get into this again, eventually you're not going to be able to keep your calories up. If you close that window down too much, your body's going to get confused. It's still going to produce the hormones that are telling you that you're full. And then, you know, calorie restriction is just going to happen by accident. And for a lot of people, that's something that you don't, you know, you don't really want to get into. So the the way that I, I wanted to structure this podcast is to dig into a little bit into the science. And then as we go down, start to get more and more into specifics on how you could fast or why you would want to fast in your certain situation. And what I found to be really cool digging back through all the research that I had done previous to this episode and then more research is that science is really that piece of, of knowledge, true science, where they prove something and then they prove it again and then they prove it again and then they prove it again. Having one study say one thing can be important and I will take some liberties when I know, when I know for a fact that the information will help someone, I will pull out those specific statistics and use it as a tactic to convince someone to do something. But when you go through the fasting research, and I'm just going to start spitting out words now, and you read reduced blood glucose, insulin levels, and stress, all separate from the benefits of calorie restriction. So we're talking about the difference between restricting your calories no matter when you eat versus not restricting your calories at all, just restricting your eating window throughout that 24-hour period. Again, reduced blood glucose, reduced insulin levels, reduced stress, decreased Alzheimer's risk via the reduction of amyloid plaques, weight loss, lowered heart disease risk, lowered blood pressure. Um, and, and one that was really fascinating was stress resistance in cells, which they found for two reasons, um, improves chemotherapy. And, and I thought it was cool that the, the doctor, you know, in the abstract explained, um, this is sort of like training for the cells, almost like you could just talk about like exercise where the, they were, the cells were being stressed out, but stressed out enough where they could almost, um, regrow. Again, I'm using this sort of as an analogy with muscle tissue and be able to, um, deal with the stress better. So one of the things with chemo is yes, you're poisoning the cancer, but you're also poisoning the person. Poisoning everything. Yeah. Yeah. You're poisoning absolutely everything. And they found that with fasting prior to the chemo window that they were able to both give them 
give the the patient more and have them react better to it, but also have them feel better within the process itself. Right. And I think that's huge. I think that makes sense too. I mean, a lot of the research with cancer cells, I mean, the first person to discover it that like cancer cells feed off sugar and if you can control your blood glucose better, it makes sense that this to be better resistant right. to all these effects from leukemia or I mean the uh, leukemia. It also makes sense that there would be stress resistance because through fasting, especially with this 14 to 16 hour window, you're putting your body in a state that's like, I don't have any food. It's like mildly I'm, stressed. Right. Yeah. I'm going to need to use the resources that I have within Absolutely. me to survive, essentially. And there's actually a lot of um, evolutionary mechanisms there. We had to be able to thrive in scenarios where we didn't have food. Right. Because the symptoms of not having food probably originally were pretty bad. Whereas biology figured out, evolution figured out that we actually need to be in a heightened state when we're fasted because it's more important for us to go find food. Right. So So if you're starving, you're more turned on because if you have to go chase down that cheetah to kill it and eat it, you got to have the energy to do so. Right. (laughs) And... Or sneak up on the cheetah. I don't know. You probably can't chase Chase a cheetah. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) And as I said before, this was just repeated over and over. So I'm I'm making my bullet points and I'm putting together what I want to say and I realize that I've typed the same thing like 10 times each. And for me, that's like a stamp on it. It's like I keep reading study after study after study about all of these things that happen when you're fasted and each study is reporting the same findings. And, you know, a lot of times when you're, when you're researching something and you have a certain opinion on it, whether you know it or not, there's that bias that comes in. I'm looking for this article. I, I know that this is going to help people. So where's the damn st- stat that I can throw out there? Um, but that's not what was happening here. It's just the same thing and the same thing, and the same thing, positive, positive, positive all the way through. Um, and then now that I said that, we can actually come back with some of those um, statistics that you can use to convince someone. Um, fasting combined with a high-fat diet um, had significant increases in memory scores, um, which you would relate to cognitive function. And there's essentially what they do in these studies is they just give them things to memorize. They put them in different states, fasted, not fasted, you just ate all these different things and the combination of fasting with that high fat diet was shown to improve the memory. And this is one of those, this is one of those opportunities for me to make sure that people understand that it's not one thing or the other. Um, There's this huge argument going on right now in the scientific community about whether the brain prefers glucose or ketones. And for anybody that doesn't know, essentially ketone bodies are what are, what our body is going to produce in the absence of glucose to try to fuel what we're doing. And that's going to come from a higher fat diet. I don't know that it matters. I, I think, don't. I, I feel like your brain is just going to use what it, right. what it has available. And the proof is there that you get improved cognitive function. So we know that it's at least good. You know what I mean? Like we know that it's not bad. Right. We know that something good is happening from it. We know that there is a scenario where if we fast 
and combine that with high fat, that cognitive function is there. I don't need to know if I know all of the negative benefits of riding that glucose roller coaster. I don't need to know. I was going to say, if you think about the maintenance and using ketones for energy, you think that your blood glucose is more stabilized. And unlike that, like everyone's felt that before when you have low blood sugar, how you feel like, like you're not yourself. You yep. feel ditzy. You feel like you're right. you know, a little bit loopy. It makes sense that if you can stabilize your blood sugar, you'd have better cognition. So to me, that makes total sense. Yeah. And the the only asterisk that I want to put on that is there are some scientists right now that are a little scared of um, glycolysis happening as a result of what's going on in your body when with exogenous ketones being added in. They're worried like there would be no state of your body using glucose and ketones simultaneously. So... I will say that, you know, we're, we're not, this is not an episode on the ketogenic diet. This is not an episode on exogenous ketones, but. Is that like liver based? Is that what you're talking about? Like texting your liver through both trying to use glucose and ketones? I don't think that they know that it's bad. Okay. They just don't know that it's not bad. There's no (laughs) proof. There's no proof yet that if your body is trying to run on glucose and you put exogenous ketones through the form of a supplement, that something bad isn't going to happen. That makes sense. I mean, and I don't know the motivation either. Is it someone trying to prove that ketosis doesn't work? Is it, you know what I mean? They're carbohydrate shills. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of that going on and I don't understand it. I don't understand these arguments of it's black and white. And I feel like we know it's not. People still haven't figured out nutrition quite yet. So how can you say something is good and something's bad that we're still not there yet? Moving on. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> there was a seven an incre- 7% increased reduction in waist circumference in a 24-week study um, when you're comparing calorie restriction versus fasting. Um, that's really exciting, and the mechanism to me makes a lot of sense. When we fast, we teach our body to, to burn body fat as fuel, and unfortunately, a lot of body fat will live in that waist circumference area. It's kind of the bane of everybody's existence. They get themselves into this, you know, physical shape that they want to be in. And that's kind of that one, that final frontier. That's why you can't really start to type anything into Google without the search terms turning into how do I get rid of belly fat? Love handles. Yeah. So that's that's obviously an exciting statistic. And then this last one um, is one where... I can put personal experience back in as well. So calorie restricted weight loss resulted in a 75, 25 split of fat to muscle loss. So obviously the 75% number sounds nice, right? Yeah. Hell yeah. But 25% muscle. That seems really high. That seems really high. One of the biggest predictors of mortality too is losing muscle mass. So who wants to lose muscle mass? I don't know. But the fasted weight loss, not calorie restricted, just changing the eating window was 90 10 so you're looking at 90 percent fat 10 percent muscle those numbers are better those numbers are better and for me personally um sure happened to dodge a bullet whoa but ted and i did not we were in a very very shitty car accident a few years ago and i haven't been able to lift weights no since essentially anytime i test it out i get hurt yeah. And I'm talking real lightweight. I get hurt. So for me, I was under the impression that, you know, through the 
bodybuilding literature, and I know that those words together sound a little funny, <laughs> but that you don't eat and your body eats the muscle. I've right? always heard that. Yeah. yeah. Stomach's uh, churning, muscles burning. So. <laughs> oh, I've, I've literally always heard that. I mean, I live with bodybuilders in grad school. Can you so. say that again? <laughs> yeah. If the stomach is churning, muscles are burning. All right. I like it. So that is actually the opposite of the truth. And I've personally found that, that when I increase my fasting window, that I hold on to muscle better. I mean, there's, there's been studies. I was listening to Dr. Rhonda Patrick talk about Dr. Sachin Panda, who kind of outlined this 14 hour fasting window or whatever. And they did, it was a a lab rat study, but through forcing the rats to fast, it increased muscle mass, just, just fasting, increased muscle mass by something like 30%. Mm-hmm. So what we're getting into next is, uh, we're going to start talking about autophagy and that's the mechanism by which all of this happens. I don't, I don't know if you can look it up, Ted, the, the Nobel prize was won within the last few years based on the doctor that found out what autophagy was like, this is brand spanking new science in the grand scheme of things. I think it was the Nobel. Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. Does it have a year on it? 2016. Yeah, 2016. Yeah. (laughs) It was Yoshinori Osumi. Right. For his discoveries of mechanisms of autophagy. So... This is, this is a, a very interesting topic, and I'm going to do my best to explain what it is and how it works without explaining it in a way where you don't know what the heck I'm talking about and also not going too far down the rabbit hole. So autophagy is essentially cellular cleansing. And what's really fascinating about it is... Um, it's, it's almost like a renovation. You're clearing out the old and bringing in the new, and it has an anti-aging effect. And you can understand that um, once cells die, unfortunately, they kind of stick around. And the way that I've interpreted this information is it's hard for new cells to come in with that waste in there. So um, through the mechanism of your insulin going down, so blood sugar is not, you know, the blood sugar cravings, Stabilizing all that stuff. Yet. That's the stabilization. Insulin goes down. Glucagon goes up. We key on this autophagy and it cleans up junky cells, produces growth hormone, produces new cells, which is obviously something that we would want. During that process, though, we're removing pathogens related to mold, infections, viruses, so this explains that that headline that was going around for you know months where if you fast for two to three days, you can reset your entire immune system, hmm. which is something you know where if if someone is getting sick all the time, you know to the point where it could actually be you know deadly or I think about like getting sick when I was growing up, like if I got sick, I didn't want to eat like your body wanted to take care of what's going on, the illnesses inside of you, so it kind of makes sense that like your auto function is when I get sick is not wanting to eat. Absolutely. And junky cell accumulation. And we talked about the amyloid plaques earlier and and how we can mitigate that Alzheimer's risk. 
um, junkie cell accumulation leads to Alzheimer's and cancer. So, so we're, we're talking about kind of going in and evaluating our cellular structure. This one's good. Let's keep this one. This one's bad. It's dead, but the remnants of it are still around. And that junkie cell accumulation leading to, you know, Alzheimer's and cancer, those are two, you know, big topics. And we talk about the motivation for yourself and for your loved ones. I don't know many people who haven't been adversely affected by those two words. I mean, those are two very serious things. When someone that you love is diagnosed with cancer or, you know, someone that you love, you can start to see their brain going a little bit like those, those two things are about as bad as it gets. Yeah. Yeah, no one wants to be around you know a family member that's you know can't remember your name or can't remember birthdays. So, you know you you feel bad for them because they're you know they're someone that you love growing up, and now all of a sudden they don't recognize who you are, and it's right. just a sad thing to go through. And unfortunately, you know it's it's almost harsh to go there, but when I think of a lot of the the people in my life that have had Alzheimer's, I can think of a lot of people that you know baked goods were you know a number one. You know, a lot of my relatives actually ate good balanced diets until it was time for dessert. Essentially it was like just sort of that meat, potato, vegetable, like the, the working class meal, which could be very doable, I think, um, in a diet, but then the sugar right after, you know, we've talked about what happens when we combine the sugar with the fat, um, who knows what the fat was. I know that there was a lot of Crisco and things of that nature. <laughs> Soybean oil. Vegetable oil. Yeah. Yeah. They decided margarine, margarine. was better for you. I don't mm. even I think margarine's illegal now. <laughs> Should be. Margarine's closer. The the chemical compounds in margarine is closer to paint than it is to butter. Mm. Paint bread. That's brutal. <laughs> that is brutal. Want some toast? Paint bread. Ugh. Just get butter. It's so much better anyway. It, it tastes is. so much better. The, the funny thing is I... I, I don't think I ate that much butter when I was younger. I think it was it's all in my margarine. house was all margarine. Yeah, me too. And you would go, you would go somewhere like a diner or something that has still had the like real butter pads. Everything would taste better. Put it's on so toast. good. Yeah. And I thought I was being like the biggest scumbag <laughs> in the world. I mean, I was probably putting it on a blueberry muffin that had like oh, so good. Yeah, <laughs> super hey, toasted hey, with like an inch of the butter. I mean, it's gross. I, hate, I don't want. There you that. go. Good answer. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> so. We're talking about this autophagy piece. I once again recommend heading over to YouTube, typing it in. It's spelled auto, P-H-A-G-Y. It's pronounced autophagy. And it's a fascinating new area of science. Um, the next piece that we're going to dig into is very closely related um, mTOR mechanistic transport of rapamycin <laughs> sounds about right is that yeah. right yeah i don't think the t is right because it's either mechanistic or mammalian it's, mamma- it's mammalian it's i think the, it's mammalian well no it's both oh is it it's, oh, I it's, know that. it's mechanistic mammalian <laughs> <laughs> mechamammalian what's the t stand for ted mechanistic target, target of target. rapamycin uh, there we yes. go we it's can just call mammalian. it mTOR um Ooh, it looks like confetti when you go to the Wikipedia page. Nice. That's fun. So essentially we are looking at something that has the 
ability to grow, literally grow muscle through increased protein synthesis. But what's very interesting about it is it's naturally there and occurring, and it's only extra effective when you suppress it based on a rebound effect. Hmm. So when we suppress mTOR, it comes flying back out and helps create muscle. It's kind of like your natural stress response where, you know, once your body is stressed, it wants to overcompensate to make sure that that stressor doesn't bother you the same way again. And that is easily demonstrated through the the two things that that suppress mTOR to then rebound them the most are exercise and fasting. I like both those things. Yeah, exactly. So essentially what you're doing is you're stressing your body out while you're exercising, while you're fasting. mTOR is is suppressed. It's brought down to a level where once it's not suppressed, it actually comes flying back in the other direction. So is this suppressed mTOR kind of the mechanism behind the stress resistance in the cells that results from fasting? Yes. So dormant mTOR is really important with expressing autophagy. So essentially, um, essentially when you're, when you're looking at it, you're always going to have a scenario where either mTOR is doing its job and autophagy is not, or we, we suppress the mTOR and the autophagy. Almost like a switch, right? Exactly. So if we're looking at it from a standpoint of we are, building muscle or we're cleaning up cells within those different time periods, we can hack that now that we know how it works, or at least we're getting a better understanding of how it works through fasting and exercise. Um, And that is that concept behind how is my, I'm not lifting. How is my muscle staying the way that it is? Because I just, for the longest time, like you can't, like you have to do the casein before bed. You have to, um, you know, do the, even, even just as far back as, is when carb backloading was a big thing. It was the, that shake, um, where you would do like the MCT with the protein, uh-huh. get into that. Um, I did a pint of ice cream before bed. Yeah, I was going to say, I did Wendy's Frosty. Well, he had his his (laughs) shake as well, though. It was like coconut oil. um, I had quite a few things to it. Coconut oil and protein powder in the morning. He also said that that you could use beer as your carb. He said he made a video. Just like Arnold. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, Tried it the other day. It's like your opinion, It didn't work. It didn't (laughs) work. Ted is willing to dig into the research for you guys. Yes. Um, I'll put my body, my body in harm's way <laughs> to uh, ensure that be the I guinea pig beard doesn't work. So when, when we're, though. when we're going back into this, we're going to start talking about a different style of fasting where you actually are taking in some macronutrients. Um, and what's good is glucose is going to obviously increase insulin secretion. Um, protein can as well f- via amino acids. Um, that is why fat completely on its own is the only macronutrient that's not going to shut off autophagy. So we talked before, insulin goes up. Incl- insulin goes down, glucagon goes up. We begin the process of autophagy. The reason, the, the segue and really where I was trying to take that is there's a lot of conversation around whether fasting is safe and or advantageous for women. 
Um, women are not small men. That is a, a statement. Um, I, I can't think of her name right now. She's She works for a company um, that does um, hydration solutions j- just for women. Hmm. Um, and obviously men can take the products as well, but a lot of it was based on the so fact. Water for women? Is that no, it's, it's like electrolyte. It's like a, uh, an electrolyte, um, company. And she says that just kind of to say, even in studies, if you look at it, there's all suggestions for women are like, they just, it's a percentage of what the suggestions. The men get. Yeah. yeah. Right. Whatever a man gets, I don't know, 70 or 80% of that, <laughs> that kind of makes sense. And the the differences in our evolutionary biology are vast. The and it's really all based on um, procreating. Symptoms of calorie restriction in males is just a matter of biological convenience. Essentially, um, it makes sense for men to want food to you know be alive and and thrive and all of that stuff. But for women. Um, they make the connection that that's how they communicate with a male to let them know whether they're, you know, well suited for pregnancy or not. So a lot of these things are actually considered, um, a form of self-sabotage within the, um, female hormonal system to say, I'm not, I can't do this. I'm not ready for this. My body's not ready for this. And, that does not happen in in the male body. So I think it's really important to just understand that women are working with a completely different hormonal system and that they they found through studies, and a lot of these are still animal studies, but they found that um, once a woman uses intermittent fasting to get themselves through a period of weight loss, that they have to reevaluate once they get back to a healthy place, what that fasting window is, is it a hundred percent fasting? Is it fat fasting? Is it based on longer periods, um, in the morning versus the evening and so on? Um, my suggestion for women, and this comes after, as with everything that we talk about in this podcast, after they see a doctor and the doctor says, this is safe, this is not safe. Um, there's the whole thing. I'm not a doctor and I don't pretend to be one on the internet. Um, it's important to understand that, um, these are suggestions based on science and not like every single person should do this. Right. Um, it's not black and white. It's not black and different for everybody. Right. So when we, when, when it's, I think it's important for everyone to have that test retest mindset of like, I tried this out. This isn't working for me. Um, and then, you know, try to figure out where they should go with it. So fat fasting is something we just talked about. Um, one of the major benefits, one of the biggest benefits of fasting is the autophagy and fat is not necessarily going to shut that off. Um, I think it's really important that if you are a female and you go through that period where you have that initial weight loss and everything's going well. And then you start to show symptoms of heightened stress, headaches, um, you know, your body weights changing in a direction that you don't want it to. 
and this is something that's happening because of the fasting, um, that you can continue on a very similar path, but within that fasting window when you're actually awake, adding some fat in. Um, and one thing that can be fantastic for that is uh, anything that's higher in MCT because MCT is is very interesting. It bypasses typical digestion and goes straight to the liver to be processed as energy. Um, typical digestion is intestine, liver, and then you know it's sent where it needs to be sent, whereas MCT bypasses that. Just goes straight to the liver. That's also why um, if it's bypassing digestion, it can come out somewhere uh, <laughs> instantly if it's not being used as energy. So yeah, taper, um, taper slowly with MCT. Oil. Yes, yes, absolutely. So MCT, um, I think it's, I think it's important to just quickly explain what that is and, and where you can get it. Uh, medium chain triglyceride, the, the chain eight and chain 10 C eight and C 10 is what you want to be looking for when you're looking at the product itself. Um, unfortunately, most of the people listening to this podcast, you live in the United States of America where the FDA is like, yeah, C1 is the same as C10 or whatever. So it's important to understand that those are the ones that we're, we're aiming for. And the more that we get outside of that, the more you're going to have issues with digestion, the more you're going to have issues with nausea, um, because you're taking in this very large amount of fat. It's sort of like, it's, it's no different than, um, when you're eating something that's like super greasy and you can immediately tell that it's wreaking havoc on your digestive system. So once we get outside of the C8 and the C10, we're starting to get into the point where you're going to notice some digestion issues. Um, starting as small as a teaspoon can be safe. Um, and there definitely is uh, uh, an acclimation period because for me, um, right off the bat, one tablespoon was a lot. And now two tablespoons is not. Right. So there wasn't, there definitely was a change. I can tell you though, a couple drops over two tablespoons. Oh no. No good. <laughs> no good for me. That's, I found my, I found my high end there. Yeah. I used to eyeball it. Bad decision. Just be like, yeah, it's good enough. It's close, right? Didn't you eyeball magnesium as well? Yeah. Same, same effect. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> disaster pants, they call it. I'm kind of the opposite with MCT oil. I can take a bunch of it, and it really doesn't affect me at all. Three tablespoons, fine. Magnesium, a little bit different, but the MCT. I don't think the magne- I don't think many people can go overboard on the magnesium. Yeah. I really don't. I don't. I it's don't used know. as a medical laxative, so it, can, it kind of makes sense. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at your Epsom salt bath. If it's not, I was going to say flavored. <laughs> flavored bath? I mean. Scented. <laughs> it's not scented it'll typically have the instructions for a bath and for the laxatives right on it and you mix it up into a cup of water and drink it mm, it's yum. lavender flavored love it <laughs> eucalyptus flavored be delicious oh, i do not recommend drinking uh scented epsom salts don't, so don't do it we don't endorse that so we can understand why if fat itself even not in the form of mct can stay outside of that that window of shutting off autophagy that if MCT bypasses digestion, how that could be a part of your fasting regimen. Sure. Um, so that would be step one. Um, if you do try this and you do have adverse effects, I will say that first period of time is not that fun for anybody. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't base your short term results on chalk it up to your hormonal system. I would give it, a, you know, a true kind of two week period. Um, 
And it's important to know that you could figure out your fasting window and be doing great, lose a bunch of weight, and then start to deal with these issues. And that's, again, when you would add that MCT in or you know any form of fat, to be honest, as long as you're making sure that the protein is very, very, very low and the you know carbohydrate is is zero. The other thing um, that has shown some real promise in this area is, you know, Ted mentioned Dr. Sachin Panda earlier. He's the one um, that's done the research on the circadian fasting. And unfortunately for my preferences, this just makes sense that our body would be more used to eating when we're awake, when the sun's out, when we're alert. So when we can get it, I mean... Right. Back in the day, we don't have lights and lamps, flashlights. We can't go see our prey in the middle of the night. Right? Exactly. And what I'm talking about for anybody that hasn't heard me talk about this on the podcast yet is the research is showing that our fast should actually be in the evening into sleep as opposed to sleep into the morning. Um, but that's for 100% best case scenario. For me, I still know that you know cutting my eating off as close to 8 p.m. as possible, and then that kind of noon to 2 area, turning it back on, has a ton of health benefits. I've seen them improve digestion, holding on to muscle mass without being able to really you know, train the way that I want to. It works. But apparently, circadian fasting, where it's more about the window of when your body is awake and ready, um, that's, that's the best case scenario. Might be a good experiment down the road to try it out, see how it goes. I mean, like you said, it doesn't quite jive. That would with the actually but potentially work work for you. I yeah, think, right? Actually, yeah, it'd be nice if I, you know, finished working and didn't have to go home and think about. It. I have to get at least one meal in, sometimes two. That's that's tough when you you get out of work at seven. You're trying to get both meals in between seven and eight thirty. It's not really the easiest time to do it, right? Um, for me, I just can't see it. I can't see it with with work, and it's important to me to eat maybe not the same thing, but at the same time as my wife. So I don't see a scenario currently where that would work. Um, but I think that that's something where, um, from a, from a hormonal standpoint where you're sort of, you know, as a female, you're waking up, you're making sure that you're breaking, you know, the fast with food while being awake, um, dealing with those stress hormones a little bit better eating throughout the day, you know, your two or three meals and then cutting that off and beginning the rest and digest, the unwind, that sort of thing going into sleep. I can I can see from just an intuitive standpoint as well as with the research that that would make more sense as opposed to I think it'd be easier fasting-wise to do that than it feels like you haven't eaten in forever when you wake up in the morning. Whereas if you ate all day, I, I feel like, and then sleep is, you're essentially sleeping through the hard part. Yeah. I mean, I look at that too. And, you know, we always talk about getting ready for a nighttime routine, like not stressing your body out, not using super hot water, not being on screens. Like it makes sense that if you didn't put food in your body so close to bedtime, that your body would be easier to mellow out. Maybe you drink a little bit of tea and that's like it. Right. Thing. So you're not stressing your body out with food. That actually reminds me. Um, there's this, now that we've said that there's something called fat fasting, it's important to note that there's also research on, um, what kicks you out of fasting. There are schools of thought where it's like, you can drink water, coffee, tea, um, 
even zero calorie beverages and, um, you know, kombucha, grains, all these different things. I think that is a very relaxed version. Yeah. Um, I personally live on the water or black coffee situation. And then if I can tell that the coffee is stressing me out, um, which is something where if, if you guys go back to the, um, to episode nine, the momentum episode, and you do those breathing exercises, you become a little bit more in tune with what's going on in your body and you're not on autopilot. You can tell, you can tell when you've had too much caffeine, that stress response is an insulin response. That's going to spike your insulin. Your body's going to be confused and it's going to think that it needs to be stressed out. Um, so that's an, that's a scenario where I believe black coffee would not be okay for fasting. If you're drinking it to the point where you're stressing your body out, we're causing, you know, our fight or flight, the yeah, crash. We're trying to avoid that at all costs. And now we're giving it, you know, to ourselves. We want to avoid. Exactly. So let's, let's dig into, um, let's dig into scenarios now. Like what, what should I actually do? And if this is what I'm, if this is what my goal is, um, why would I want to do this? So weight loss, this one is pretty simple. Um, we're helping with blood glucose regulation. Uh, we're helping with teaching our body to burn fat um, instead of muscle. It makes perfect sense to me why people lose weight doing this. You and I have talked about this before and you talk about this all the time and you, we have training camps and you give a talk about it. Miss Athletics that like if you don't, you know, burn the gasoline, okay, you don't put the carbs in your body, put carbs in, you need to use them. And there's no reason why if you're not training, you're not doing that. Why would you need to add those excess carbs? I mean, we look at, you know, some of the stuff that goes on with CrossFit. They talk about, hey, if you, uh, you know, if you're having an issue with blood glucose, it's probably due to the carbs you're putting in your body. Just try to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So weight loss scenario, um, this is the scenario where I think that window of eating gets smaller and smaller. If, if we're looking for a true uh, weight loss benefit from this, I think it's really important to starve those gut bugs that are telling you, give me the sugar. Give me the sugar. Um, and that's what's fascinating about fasting is we have these, these, um, this bacteria in our gut the bad bacteria as it's called sometimes that is literally running the show asking for sugar. And we think that it's us. We think that, you know, they're the memes where you're like, Oh man, it's just donut. I love donuts. And it's, it's not you. You're not making that decision at all. You're not just deciding that you love donuts. Your body is deciding that it loves donuts because it thinks that that calorie surplus is going to help us from starving to death. You're not going to starve to death. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I don't think anyone has the means to listen to a podcast and to starve to death. <laughs> and if you do, give me a call. <laughs> fair. I'll set you so. up with a scenario where you're not starving yourself. So when we, again, this should be gradual. This should be, I find that starting around 12 hours is very doable. And for people that are like 12 hours, it's like that includes sleep. Right. 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. or 7 to 7 
or six to six, it's not that bad. So get your eight hours of sleep and it's only really four hours of fasting. Yeah, right? Stop yeah. two hours before bed and then do eat within two hours of waking up. And I don't, when you're starting out and you're trying to make a change, do what works better for you. Yeah. So if you're like, oh, there's no way I could do it in the morning, then do it at night. We just talked about the benefits of that circadian fasting. Like make sure that this works for you. But when we get into that scenario where we close that window down, um, we're improving digestion, we're getting rid of cravings, we're doing all kinds of stuff that's so important to being able to lose weight and keep it off for the long term. Not like I have the mental fortitude to change my life for 30 days. I have the the actual, you know, um, benefit and the actual, like I, these changes have been made in my body. It's not just willpower at this point. It's like becomes your normal. So obviously weight loss is, is something that a lot of people are after and there are a lot of mechanisms behind it. But at the end of the day, um, what we're asking for is that 12 to 16 hour window, six days a week. And then I am a really big fan of a 24 hour fast once a week. I personally have not, I, I think I said this already on the podcast and I still haven't done it. I have not done the 36. I haven't done a day where I don't eat because a 24 hour, yes, it's 24 hours, but I cheat it so that I get to eat yeah. both days. Yeah. I have yet to I wake up. 24 hour yet. <laughs> it's actually, it's actually the 24 hour is such a mind game because if you're busy, it's easy. If you are not busy, it's impossible inside of the window when you have already fasted for every day. Say, guessing based on, we just built this office and built this new space. I probably actually did do 24 hours now that I think about it (laughs) without even realizing it because we were so busy getting things set up. Intermittent fasting for a lot of people is just skipping breakfast. It's as easy as that. 24 hour fast is breakfast and lunch, essentially. If you play it right. If you do it right, yeah. If you play it right, that's that's what happens. But what's funny is the power of the mind that comes in here because the first few times that I did the 24-hour fast, I found that I got hungry within my 16-hour fast when I never get hungry because I was thinking about it so much. Mm-hmm. That really came into play. Whereas now I will literally plan out my day so that that doesn't happen. I give myself stuff to do. My to-do list is nice and long. I'm checking stuff off. I'm getting stuff done. It's getting a little bit later in the day. I'll hit some sort of like maybe aerobic exercise piece and then it's over. But if you obsess over it and sit around all day, you know, like staring at the fridge, it's it's hard to not eat. Yeah, it's yeah. really hard. It's weird. It's weird. It's It's like you'd think being up and around and doing things would like burn the calories and make the food cravings there. But that's not what's going on. It's a, an extremely mental thing. So I, I personally recommend a 24 hour fast once a week for the majority of people. The people that I would not suggest it for are the women that, you know, experience those adverse effects of fasting in terms of their hormonal cycle. Um, and then in terms of performance for, for an athlete that's, you know, really worried about physical performance, I would keep that nowhere near uh, a serious training day. 
that's too much stress. Good for an active recovery day or a total day off from the gym. But I would actually say total day off only. Total day off only. Yeah. And, and having, and having, um, and that's just for an athlete. Um, an athlete can't afford to stress themselves out any further. And we're unfortunately, you know, I, I say this is not a CrossFit podcast and this is not a CrossFit podcast, but a lot of our examples from our world, our CrossFit athletes, there are a lot of athletes that are not stressing themselves out to the point that our athletes are. Yeah. So I think it's just important to, to know that a lot of our examples come from that world. Um, so we've, we've talked about the weight loss. We've talked about where that weight loss comes from. Um, the fact that you do not need to do fasting and calorie restriction. I think that's so important to understand that we are not starving ourselves. Right. We are giving our bodies the opportunity to digest food, to work within what our biology has turned into over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We're just hacking the system. We're just working with it. We still need, you know, I mean, how many calories, how many calories do we eat a day? Me, roughly 3,000, yeah. somewhere around there. So we're talking about, it's a pretty, that's a pretty decent amount of food, especially if you're looking at like two fifteen hundred calorie meals. Like those are those are big meals. Those, those are, are serious uh, meals. Easy, hard, you know, hard for most to choke down. Exactly. Not for you. Not for me. Though. Not, I was no. gonna say that, but especially if there's speed involved. Yeah, no kidding. So, <laughs> so when we go to mental performance, there's another piece of that evolutionary biology that we already touched on, just sort of because it came up, but that adrenaline and dopamine release that biologists think was built in because it was really time to panic. Like you're starving. You need to get food. We got to figure this out. We're actually going to make you feel better so that you can go search for that. So that's the mechanism that's behind mental performance. You hear about um, before intermittent fasting was a big thing. You would hear it from people more in the like Buddhist community where they would say you hit a point clear where there's the clarity and they, you know, would compare it to, you know, psychedelic experiences. And, and it's actually based on the fact that our bodies were like, well, it's time to panic, but if we panic, (laughs) it's not going to be good. So, um, it's really cool to be able to, again, hack that system and say, okay, I'll take, you know, a dopamine release and an adrenaline response. And, you know, we circle back to the studies showing that the fasting and the high fat diet, you know, improve memory and cognitive function. Um, that is the mechanism by which that actually happens. So that's why you would fast for mental performance, physical performance. Um, I feel like I don't need to rehash all of the benefits. You could understand why, all of those benefits that I talk about would help with physical performance, right? Yeah. We talked about um, blood sugar control and muscle growth and mTOR and autophagy and an athlete needs the, the, you know, the components of the engine to be, you know, is fine tuned. Exactly. But there's also this piece of um, metabolic flexibility where it is slowly but surely being proven that we can both, be a glucose in a ketone building machine at separate times. Um, so essentially what I'm looking for with, with what 
Sherb is doing with his diet and his fasting is he wakes up in the morning. His body is in fat burning mode because it's been fasting all night. This is everybody. He continues to tell his body that that's what he prefers as he fasts. And then hopefully his first meal is primarily fat. A little bit of protein, not a big deal, especially for someone in his, you know, physical shape. And once he exercises, his body's going to say, hey, we prefer to burn fat as fuel. So when he's going through essentially anything that doesn't have an all out sprint in it, he is using both his own personal body fat and the fatty acids that he's ingested to power him through at the same exact time he is modulating muscle tissue tearing up the fibers and the you know tiny little tears so that they grow back bigger most people understand that that's how muscle growth works and when he does that the glucose receptors are coming to the surface of his muscles Um, essentially his muscles are asking for carbs especially if it's high intensity so when he gets done that he is going to ingest carbohydrate and protein low fat on purpose because that insulin spike that both exercise creates whey protein creates creatine creates carbs carbs create create, (laughs) sure this all working together and ushering the the amino acids and the carbs into the muscle tissue is something that his body is like begging for because he's starved it of that you know, that's that, you know, insulin resistance versus insulin sensitivity thing that we talk about where his body is just like, let's go. Now, what's important here is that he does this on, I mean, you do this like five days a week, right? Five to six days a week. Yeah. Five, six days a week. We can get to a point where, you know, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit where we could, the insulin sensitivity our bodies could essentially be get to the point where they're like, we don't know what to do with this. You never incorporate carbohydrate into your diet. Now we don't really know what to do with it. And then it stays circulating in the blood with the fat to create adipose tissue. So it's important that he's following the cycle round and round and his body can put the carbohydrates into those muscle cells so that when I ask him to go through 15 calorie sprints, on an assault bike, it's there. It's, it's still there. Yeah. I definitely find that, that at, it's important to have that, um, carbohydrate in my diet post training because I still need it for high intensity output. Right. But every other outside of that window, every other scenario is creating insulin sensitivity. Correct. I mean, outside of my post-workout shake and potentially a one high protein, high carbohydrate meal with low fat, I don't put much carbohydrate in my body outside of what comes with like vegetables. Right. So you're looking at very, very small doses of carbohydrates that really don't spike my insulin because they're mostly fibrous. Right. So if we're operating still under the science that it is not possible to do those sprints without carbohydrate, but that you are able to within that small window refuel and it's working, but you're also seeing the improved benefits through um, you know, your aerobic system and whatnot, then we're sort of showing through an N equals one experiment that mm. you can use both. Yeah. I found that, you know, I was 
honestly concerned early on that not getting enough carbohydrate would affect because everything you read about performance base is that athletes need carbohydrate to create, you know, high energy output. That's how your body creates ATP in the short term. It's necessary. But for me, I've found that only, you know, limiting myself most days, somewhere between 50 and 150 grams of carbohydrates on training days, which for a lot of athletes is a very small dose, gets me through and I'm still able to do that. And I feel like, you know, eating all that fat contributes to being able to perform, you know, past one exercise piece or being able to, you know, fuel myself without feel like I'm putting anything that's like deleterious to getting healthier, essentially. And do you feel like you've been doing it long enough to know whether inflammation is part of the equation? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've, you know, I had this period when I was trying the higher carb, lower, um, lower fat ratios that, you know, I felt it was fun. You know, I'm eating PB and J. This is great. I'm eating cereal. Like it's probably not the healthiest thing, but I needed to fuel my exercise and it'd be things that, you know, stuck around for longer than normally. Like, you know, get a little tweak at the gym and, you know, normally where you could work it out in a day or two is taking an extra couple of days and, you know, that could be some inflammation. And, you know, I found that and sleep as well. And there was weird things that were just going on that I didn't normally feel when I was putting more fat in my diet. So I definitely feel different when I have a higher fat to carb ratio. Yeah. So we've gone over the science, we've gone over the benefits, we've gone over different scenarios of why you would want to fast. Um, just to circle back and make sure that this all makes sense to everybody. Um, my current recommendations are for a tough training day, 12 hours fasting for, um, an active rest day, 14 hours for a full rest day, 16 hours. Um, that is the athlete physical performance plan, uh, that I have for people. And then for your everyday person, I know that from my personal, you know, and I've played with this, so I would recommend that you all do the same, that, 16 hours a day with that 24 hour fast. And and I'm not going to lie to you guys and say that I hit that every week. Um, but I try to hit the 24 hour. Um, and I notice the benefits from it. It's just one of those things where if your routine's always 16, it's hard to one random day, mix it up without, you know, just planning on it. And again, like I said, I make sure my to-do list is nice and long. If I'm home, I can't work from home on the day that I do my 24 hours. It's just, <laughs> Like the fridge is there. Yeah. I can do that. It's, it's not a, it's not a good idea for me personally. So, um, with these fasting recommendations, I just want to make sure again, that, that you guys understand that you should consult a, a physician for any of this stuff to make sure that, that they agree that it's something that you can try. Um, and then once you do try start in that 10 to 12 hour range and bump it up day by day, whether it's, you know, you go one hour extra a week or you go 15 minutes a day. You can sort of figure out what works for you as you go through. Um, as always, what gets measured gets managed. So make yourself a little journal about your fasting. How do you feel? What do you think could have contributed to that? Did you not sleep that well the night before? Therefore, you're stressed out. Therefore, your body's asking for this stuff even more. Um, that's why you know, we have the order to, to our intro series that we do. Um, I do not recommend tackling intermittent fasting without tackling, you know, the, the personal relationships and sleep piece. So make sure that if you haven't heard those episodes that you circle back and check those out, but, um, do a little N equals one experiment, you know, 
uh, make some notes, you know, track your body weight, track your mood, track, you know, as many different things as you can and try to draw correlations between, you know, both physical and mental performance, you know, the number on the scale, you know, what you see in the mirror, those kind of things and, and see if this is for you because, um, it's, I know it's been very beneficial to me personally, um, both from a physical and mental standpoint and the science behind it is, um, is growing in the, the, the right direction in terms of how much of it's there. Um, I mean, the one, the one thing I could add to that whole thing, and this is my intention going into this is I wanted something that was healthier, but also allowed me to perform. But one really cool side effect, this whole thing, and you touched on this earlier with your own personal experiences that your digestion got better. I had a, I think an issue with that. I think honestly, I was putting food in my body and because I was exercising and eating, exercising and eating, or I was eating when I was stressed out, meaning I was working or I found that I was probably losing most of my nutrients. I was leaching them out of my body because I wasn't actually relaxing and like enjoying my food. And right. I found that doing it this way and having a focused window for eating and like relaxing when I eat seems to help my digestion quite a bit. Cause for the longest time I didn't think I had very healthy digestion and now it seems like it's regulating for the first time and like my entire life. So that's pretty exciting to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of going back to that, what gets measured gets managed. Uh, the app zero for tracking your fasting window is free. And super awesome. easy to like use that. and it's awesome it'll it'll give you reminders of like hey it's time to eat or you're supposed to start fasting now um but it's a great app i think it's from the same people that made the oak app right yes yeah yep so that's it guys um like i said earlier as we move forward if you want a specific topic that is dug into in depth like this one please let us know um if you have a suggested guest, uh, especially if you can help us get that guest, um, please let us know. The We had told you that the next episode would have a guest on episode nine. We were not talking about shirts. Oh, Sorry, shirt. come on. We, we kind of halfway, you know, went halfway through on that promise. We did. Um, our next episode is scheduled to be an is interview. scheduled to be an interview and it's an extremely exciting and important interview i think something that could help people tie all of this together um with a with a real true way to get started um so that's really exciting but i don't want to dig too much into that we'll, we'll leave it we'll leave you hanging wondering who that's going to be what it's going to be about as always the hard part of the episode the part that i don't like asking for five-star reviews. Um, you guys have been amazing so far with, with your five-star reviews. It's, it's really cool to read through those. We really appreciate it. It's essentially the only way that we can get seated any higher on iTunes and, you know, sort of grow as a podcast. So if you guys like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. As always, you can find us on Instagram at the misfit.project misfitproject.com misfitproject on facebook info at misfitproject if you would like to shoot us an email until next time yeah we'll we'll see you guys next time thanks for having me